Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert and I are going to be unavailable to record a regular podcast this week because we're both going to be recovering from some rather strange cranial surgery that uh, involves the ins- the expansion of the mind, uh, new senses, new vistas. So we're going to be going to a happy place. But in the meantime, we thought we'd take you back to an old favorite. Yeah, this is our episode on the science of coincidence. It's uh, it's one that we really enjoy putting together. I think it's definitely an evergreen episode that has, uh, you know, it stands the test of time. I think I recorded this one uh, before I was actually a host on the show. I was oh, okay, uh, doing yeah. a guest episode. This was one of the first ones I ever did. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So it's it's a strong one. And uh, if you've heard it before, then it, I think that it's a perfect one to re-experience. And if you are a newer listener to the show, then, hey, listen to it for the first time. So without further ado, let's uh, jump into the repeat. So I've got one for you, okay. Robert. Hit me. Tell me if you've heard this one before. Okay. Lincoln and Kennedy. Oh, yes. You know this? Mm-hmm. I was first exposed to this in middle school when a teacher of mine get, gave us a list of these like it was some kind of really important fact we needed to learn. Uh, but yeah, how about this? Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy, two American presidents, both were elected to Congress in the year 46, Lincoln in 1846, Kennedy in 1946. Okay. Uh, both were elected president in the year 60, uh, Lincoln in 1860, Kennedy in 1960. Each of their last names both contain seven letters. Uh, and then there's this whole list of coincidences that keeps going. They were both shot in the head. They were both assassinated by Southerners. They were both succeeded by Southerners. Their vice presidents were Southerners. Uh, both vice presidents were named Johnson. What are the odds? <laughs> yeah, I, I remember this being rolled out, perhaps in a history class. And, uh, you know, the, the list would start about these coincidences, and I would kind of tune out after the first one or two. Um and I guess that that kind of boils down to the type of people in in the world. Like there there are people out there who just tune out after the first coincidence or two, and then there are those who obsess about it and see this as as something something really crucial and something really telling about these two men, about the history of this nation, uh, etc. That might be the difference between us, Robert, because I did not tune out. I was com- <laughs> my mind was blown. Yeah. To uh, to borrow from a popular phrase, yeah. I I sat there on my desk like, wow, what are the odds? You know, must be some kind of uh, ghost spirit controlling this. It, it, it just, I was amazed. Or like their two twin souls are basically the same entity uh, reincarnated and, and, and tracked, hunted by the same uh, uh, extra dimensional force. Yeah, or there, there was some sort of like cosmic literature teacher trying to get me to observe parallels between the meaning of these two men. Huh. Yeah, it's uh, another one, of course, that comes to mind is uh, the deaths of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, two individuals who, of course, are uh, very uh, interconnected in the, the history of uh, the United States as well. Sure. Both instrumental in drafting the Declaration of Independence, which was signed on July 4th, 1776. Uh, both men died on the same day, July 4th, 1826, exactly 50 years to the day after the document was ratified. So that that 
you know, that that kind of hits you. Like, I like that one because that one's nice and, and succinct, you know? Right. Like, what were the chances? You don't need a list. Yeah. It's right there. Yeah. I mean, they were they were good friends, so maybe there was, you could imagine some level of synchronicity about, you know, when you're giving up and sort of handing it over to the Reaper, but... Uh, but the the dates are are kind of com- compelling there. It would be even crazier though if I found out now that you played John Adams in a production of 1776. Uh, no, but I was in a production of 1776. Darn, there you go. I played Thomas Jefferson in a in a production of 1776. So we're tied into it too. There's no escaping the the the, the black hole of coincidence. Okay, I've got an even crazier coincidence. No, it's probably not. This is kind of dumb. But why do so many action heroes have the initials JB? Hmm. James Bond, Jason Bourne, Jack Bauer, Jack Burton. Ah, uh-huh, my favorite. Well, I mean, what are the chances? Actually, we have no idea, do we? <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't read any. I mean, maybe there's some really deep statistical study on this out there, but uh, but yeah, maybe it, is it is it. <laughs> on one hand, it's just possibly pure luck, and we only pick up right on there there being a JB here, a JB there, because we're also not taking into account. All the other JB initials out there, like yeah. like, does Jim Bean factor into this? Probably not. And all of the action heroes that aren't JBs. Yeah, and then to what extent is it just completely almost subconscious? You know, because you have an action hero, and and, and by extension of action hero, you think of mythological hero and the symbolic power of the hero and how it resonates through uh, through our culture and through through our, our the way we view the world. And uh, and perhaps that ends up informing it. You, know, you have James Bond in your mind, and then you end up creating Jason Bourne and Jack Bauer in the same way. And I'm just purely spitballing here. You could perhaps have uh, the mythic Hercules in your mind, and then when you need to create a another you know mythically strong hero, perhaps you go with the Hulk. Right, the same kind of consonants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, we associate sounds with with ideas, certainly. Yeah. Now, another crazy one, and I love this one uh, in part because it involves uh, Edgar Allan Poe, of course. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe only wrote one novel uh, his entire career, you know, mostly known for his, his excellent short stories. Yeah. But the novel in question, published in 1838, The Narrative of Author Gordon Pym of Nantucket. I've never read it. Never, yeah, never read it either. <laughs> but uh, it, the fiction of this story is you have a crew of a ship called Grampus, and they wind up adrift with no food or water. And so first they catch a tortoise, they eat it, but eventually they have to draw straws to see who winds up as dinner. And uh, an individual uh, named Richard Parker draws the short straw, so they stab him, and then they eat him. And then they build a house on the boat so that they can bury him behind a wall. Yeah, I mean, you got to play the greatest hits, right? Yeah. Here's where it gets crazy. Years later, in 1884, a yacht named the Mignonette leaves England is headed toward uh, Sydney, Australia, and it sinks in a storm. Four men wind up adrift in a lifeboat. They catch a turtle. They eat it. All right. But again, you're probably thinking at this point, okay, you know, turtles, how hard are they to catch? There are lots of turtles in the world. They're all tasty. Yeah, and if you're four men in a boat in the middle of nowhere and you're hungry, you're going to eat it. No big deal. But then it turns to cannibalism. And this, too, you might think, well, what are... Well, four guys in 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 the middle of the ocean in a little boat. They're hungry. They've only had one turtle to eat. It's kind of inevitable, right? Well, this is this is crazy. But uh, aboard this uh, vessel, you have a 17-year-old named Richard Parker, the same name as the individual they ate in Poe's novel. This guy falls overboard, drinks a bunch of seawater to quench his thirst, uh, and so he starts going. He starts deteriorating really fi- quickly here, and they decide, well, he's he's about to die. We're going to have to eat him, and they eat him. So 
you have these this fictional uh, account of cannibalism seeming to inform this real life uh, um, act of cannibalism years later in a, in almost identical circumstances. Yeah, and it's so gruesome you can really doubt that they staged it to happen on purpose because of the novel. Yeah, like I can't imagine them being on the boat and, and someone saying, "Look, I read this book, <laughs> and uh, there was a guy in the book named Richard Parker, and they ate him. And your name's Richard Parker, so I'm not saying we have to eat you, but come on, yeah, yeah, it's like the worst school play ever. Yeah, exactly. All right, so uh, in this, we're talking about coincidence, and in this episode, we're talking about coincidence and the, the science of coincidence, how we perceive a coincidence. Uh, but let's uh, let's get down to brass tacks. What exactly is a coincidence? Yeah, and specifically, I think we should think about what's the difference between a coincidence and just an improbable event. Um, so a standard Oxford Dictionary's definition is a remarkable concurrence of events or circumstances without apparent causal connection. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's sort of playing up on the like the the two different things coinciding, uh, like like the Pym, uh, right. like the Gordon Pym example, or like uh, Jefferson and Adams, you know, dying on the same day. Uh, another way of putting it is that it's a a concurrence of events that is quote perceived as meaningfully related with no apparent causal connection. Um, and, and that quotes from a paper that we're going to end up talking about later in this episode. But I think that's something we should highlight is that a coincidence uh, has a perceptual element. It's something that seems to be important to us. Like it has a psychic weight. But, you know, it, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier about the, the two students in a classroom. One of them is just enthralled by the uh, the Kennedy-Lincoln coincidence uh, list, and the other is, uh, is just tunes out on it. Right. Uh, because that, that kind of comes down to how we can look at coincidence in life. You can either say, well, it's just pure dumb luck, it's just a matter of statistics, and then there's the, the, the view that there is something else going on here, that there is some sort of connected connective tissue that we, we're just not privy to. And we have seen some very, um, you know, thoughtful and informed study on both sides of the issue. Right. There have been brilliant people throughout the years who paid way more attention to coincidences than we might today. I mean, we all experience coincidences. I, I would be shocked if there was someone who would say, no, I've, I've never experienced anything like a really weird concurrence. It happens every single day. It happened to us. We were talking about while we were researching these podcasts, like just strange topics coming up and seemingly unrelated episodes. Yeah, I mean... Uh, of course, that kind of gets down to the, like the power of coincidence. Coincidence yeah. can can kill you. Coincidence can can make you rich. Coincidence can just be this seemingly meaningless little connective tissue between two things. Yeah. Um, and it, it's a trap that's so easy to fall into, especially given how important causation and determination are in human culture. Right. And we'll get more into that later. But uh, I mean, you you almost can't fault an individual for for thinking about these coincidences in terms of some sort of uh, connection. No, and you see it at every level. I mean, uh, what is the the meet cute in every romantic comedy? It's always some kind of coincidence that brings people together. Mm -hmm. And on the opposite end, you've got famous scientists who have tried to investigate, uh, you know, what's the meaning of coincidences. I think one great example is the Austrian biologist Paul Kammerer, uh, you know, if, if you ever have that feeling like, wow, I think everything's connected. Mm-hmm. He did, too. <laughs> uh, so uh, Paul Kammerer lived from 1880 to 1926, and he was a proponent of Lamarckian evolution. Have you ever 
I'm sure you're familiar with this yeah, concept. Yeah, this is the, the, the one, to just to give everyone a quick reminder, the idea that, say, giraffes, their necks grow long because they're reaching for those top uh, those top leaves. Right. And so it's like one generation informing the next. Yeah, so normally, uh, now what we believe is Mendelian genetics. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, inherit, uh, you inherit your genetic traits from your parents' germ cells, and you pass those same genetic traits on to your kids, and, unless you have a certain mutation that can be basically random. Uh, but yeah, Lamarckian ideas were that you could, you know, maybe if you work out a lot or something, your kids will be born with bigger muscles yeah. or something you like that. You strain your neck trying to reach something in this life and in the next life your kids will have longer necks by virtue of your your straining yeah and so in in one famous experiment Kammerer claimed to have uh, caused male specimens of a of an animal called the midwife toad to grow these black forearm pads that some species of male toads have and they use them to hold on to females during mating mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately some other scientists in the field examined camera specimens and found that the black pads on his toads had been injected with artificial ink ah. and so camera denied responsibility for that and i guess nobody really knows whose fault that was but, but the accusation here would be that he cheated Right. Right. Which is important because we'll come back to cheating. Right. Uh, but Kammerer wasn't only interested in toads and inheritance. He was also interested in coincidences. Uh, like he kept a diary of daily coincidences. And just one example, again, cited in a, in a paper that we're going to bring up in a bit. Uh, his brother-in-law tells him that he attended a concert and held both the ticket for seat number nine and the coat check ticket numbered nine. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that itself doesn't seem all that interesting until you start making lists, which Kammerer did. Yeah. And he added them up over time. And I have to admit, when you add, it's it's kind of like the Lincoln-Kennedy thing. The first one isn't all that interesting Mm -hmm. until you start adding them together. And then it really gets your attention. There's this cumulative effect of this, like, snowballing kind of attention-getting significance of uh, coincidences that pile up on each other. So Kammerer organized these thoughts into a hypothesis he called the law of seriality. Uh, And he posited basically this underlying force in reality that was a, a, quote, world mosaic or cosmic kaleidoscope that brings like objects and events together. Hmm. So almost a kind of uh, an emergent order uh, in the chaos, yeah. which, uh, which I, I could buy into. I mean, we see emergence as a, as a major topic in, in understanding and intelligence, evolution, etc. So why not coincidence? Sure. But of course, Kammerer wasn't the only scientist who has been interested in coincidences and who has attributed some significant role in the universe to them. Carl Jung. Carl Jung loved coincidences. So Carl Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist. You've probably heard of him as sort of like a, he's one of the big names in, uh, psychology and psychiatry following Freud. You know, yeah. It's like the you mantle think of past. Freud, you think of Jungian. Yeah, right. These are the, the, the big, uh, big tents. Yeah, but Jung was, uh, was very much into sort of interesting, borderline magical, esoteric ideas. So he loved the paranormal. He was interested in meaningful connections and mystical truths, ESP, astrology, psychokinesis, uh, all kinds of stuff like that. And so naturally, he was really interested in coincidences. And so he wrote a book called 
synchronicity and a causal connecting principle. And this book was actually, uh, it was, I think, extracted from a larger volume of his work and eventually published on its own. But I read this book when I was in college, and I remember thinking at the time, yet again, playing up on my, I, I guess I'm susceptible to this kind of thing. I was like, I wonder if he's on to something here. <laughs> it, it seemed really interesting. So, what kind of coincidences did Jung notice? Well, he gives one example. This is the one that's always cited. It's, it's, it's his favorite example. It's the golden scarab. So in a, a 1951, I believe it was, essay on synchronicity, uh, Jung told this story that he had been seeing a female patient for psychoanalysis. And Jung believed basically that she was languishing because she was in sort of a prison of rationality. She was just too rational. Uh-huh. Uh, she she wouldn't, quote, open up to the human side of life. Okay. Uh, for Jung, I think this had a, a decidedly sort of supernatural tinge to it. Okay. And um, he wanted to, uh, and this is from a particular translation, quote, sweeten her rationalism with a somewhat more human understanding. So one day she was in psychoanalysis telling him about a dream she'd had where someone gave her a golden scarab. And Jung claims at that very moment an insect started knocking against the window of the office where they were. And he opened the window and he caught the insect and it was a beetle. It was a scarab type beetle. And he said it was like a green color, but in the right light, it reflected the light and looked gold. And then he presented it to her in this moment of, you know, one of those, there are more things in heaven and earth than I dreamt of in your philosophy kind of moments. And, and he hoped that this helped shatter her rationalism. Okay. And so I don't know if that happened to me, if I'd just been talking about a, a beetle and then a beetle started knocking against the window, I'd probably think that was interesting, but I don't know if I'd assign any meaning to it. Yeah. It doesn't really smack of just, Heaven sent beetle uh, sent to uh, you know open up my mind and uh, make me uh, more you know in love with life because there were probably just a lot of beetles flying around out there. Sure, but Young commented that when coincidences like these accumulate, it's what we were talking about earlier. The more of them happen, the more we take note of them, mm-hmm. uh, and with good reason because it's harder to explain them away by random chance. The more they accumulate, yeah, you fill so, up that entire diary with them, right? Yeah. And it's, it, it has weight to it. Exactly. So Jung came up with this term, synchronicity, to describe the a-causal connecting principle that links meaningfully significant events that couldn't be connected by physical causes. So he's not saying that there's like a uh, there's like a you know a ghost that put the beetle there mm-hmm. uh, because that would be in some way causal. Right. Instead, he's saying there's another force in the universe other than causality. It sort of runs parallel to causality that connects events and and creates links of significance, but it's not physics. Okay. Like I kind of, in, in making sense of it in my own head, I, I thought of it in terms of this room we're recording in, uh, in, in which case we have wires that are running outside of the walls and running across the floor and under the table, and then there are the wires within the wall that we cannot see. Sure. And so the the, the the wires that are running outside of the walls are are kind of like causality. We can we can see them. We're in causality. We, our brain spends a lot of time making sense of cause and effect. But then there's this idea of that there might be some other force at work within the walls. We can't see it. We're not we're not privy to it. It's exact in, in ins and outs, but it's it's making things interconnected. It's it's 
these connections are popping up throughout our life, throughout the time scheme. Yeah, causality connects events in the physical realm. Mm -hmm. And according to Jung, synchronicity would connect events in sort of like the psychic meaningfulness realm. That it was this force, it makes things have meaning and shows us meaning by bringing unlikely events together. Okay, so this would be kind of like an... have you seen Interstellar? Yes, I have. Okay, so there's the whole uh, bit in there about love, is this, uh, yeah. this connecting force. Like, that seems to line up rather closely with this idea of synchronicity. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah. So coincidences obviously have this power over us. They captivate us. They seem significant. They make us wonder if there is some kind of magical or, or super psychic force at work. And sometimes it can be hard to tell because we don't know how to analyze coincidences, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, y- y- there, when something happens, like you get a number nine from the coat check and then you're in seat number nine, there's really no reason to ask why something like that happened. Yeah. But you can perhaps ask, wait a minute, did anything significant actually happen? <laughs> Indeed. Now, we've talked about the, uh, the, the sort of, uh, supernatural end of the pool. The idea that there is some sort of uh, of intrinsic synchronicity uh, connecting these uh, these events. And now we're gonna we're gonna look at a more uh, critical, a more skeptical side of the pool. Right. So several times so far in this podcast, we've referred ahead to a paper. Yes. And this is sort of a classic paper uh, in statistics and and mathematical analysis of coincidences. And it's called Methods for Studying Coincidences. Uh, it was published by the Journal of the American Statistical Association in December nineteen. 19- 1989. I think it had been given at a uh, it had been given as a presentation in 1987, a couple of years before. Uh, but it's by uh, Percy Diaconis and Frederick Mosteller, and they were, I believe, Harvard mathematicians. And Diaconis and Mosteller offer four main categories of explanation for seeming examples of synchronicity. You know, they refer to Cameron, they refer to Young, mm-hmm. and they say, what do, what do we make of these events, and, and how can we tell if something is actually going on that's worth noting? So the first of the options is that there is an actual causal link. Yeah, <laughs> It's not a coincidence because there's a cause that, that two seemingly disparate events happen together. Uh, a second one is psychology. It's something about the way our brains work, the fact that we're noticing what seem to be coincidences, and we'll definitely have more on that later. Uh, another point is what they call the multiplicity of endpoints, and this is going to be about how how we count something as a hit. Mm-hmm. And then the last one that they cite is called the law of truly large numbers, and that's going to be about statistical context. So I think we should go back and look at causes first. So when something happens that's seemingly just a, a huge coincidence, you should always consider the fact that there might be a cause that's more obvious than you realize. Yeah, this would, of course, be the birthday problem. Right. Which is a, a problem that uh, that uh, people encounter just everywhere, right, in, in your workplace, at school, etc. I mean, we can uh, encounter it right here in the podcast chamber. Joe, when's your birthday? July 16th. Mine's October 16th. Whoa! Synchronicity. Are you serious? I'm serious. We, the, 16. 16. Okay, what happened when you were 16? What city were you in? Oh, Paris, Tennessee. I was in Tennessee, too, when I was 16. Oh, I know. Sorry. I was in Fayetteville, Tennessee. But still Tennessee. Tennessee. So. Man, something weird's going on. Yeah, or, but but e- worth noting here is notice how we're we're singling in on the hits. We totally missed the same day birthday. Yeah. By my many months. But 
We're counting as a hit because we both had 16. Yeah. Uh, so here's the birthday problem. Uh, let's say you're in a subway car. Okay. And you're riding around with some random strangers. And because you are extremely rude, uh, you start getting people's attention, getting them to take their headphones off. And you, you ask the strangers in the car all of their birthdays. Well, that's not rude. That's just good manners. You, <laughs> you, I mean, it's, a, it's an icebreaker. Okay, yeah. yeah. You might want to know if today's their birthday, and, and you should offer them this cake that you found on the ground. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so how many people would you have to ask before it's more likely than not that you'd find two people with the same exact birthday? Well, let's see. 365 days in a year. Uh, so you'd think, well, maybe I need to talk to 365 people, right? Or maybe twice that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not good at uh, at doing math like that immediately, but that's where I would have gone the first place in my head. Okay, it's got to be like one in three sixty five times yeah. two or something like that. Uh, but no, the answer is twenty three. Okay, but we're not going to take the time to explain all the math. You can go look that up online. It is well documented. Uh, this is a classic problem. If you ask twenty three people in a room, in a train car, whatever, you have reached the 50-50 odds that two of them will have the same birthday. And one of the key points here is that you're not starting with a specified birthday. You're not saying, uh, how many people do I have to ask before I find somebody with my birthday? Okay, you're, you're just asking, trying to find one match. Right, yeah. In, in this group, of, uh, if you ask 23 people, odds are two of them will have the same birthday. Okay. What if you want to find three people with the same birthday? That's got to be astronomical, right? I, I would think so. I mean, you'd think that, that would just multiply it, yeah. Uh, no, actually, if your train car can hold 88 people, chances are in your favor. You reach 50-50 odds again if you ask 88. Huh. So that just shows that the, the statistical probability of, in, in this case, this is a birthday match occurring, is actually... Uh, uh, Far greater than we 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 may give it credit at yeah. the surface. Yeah, I think the point is that we are often surprised by events that are not statistically unlikely at all. Yeah, like they they just don't match our intuitions. Basically, we we have exaggerated intuitions for how unlikely some things are. Especially, it turns out. Uh, particular types of things. For example, things that happen to us. This is a funny thing. Mm-hmm. We're, we're way more surprised about coincidences that happen to us than coincidences that happen to other people. Oh, yeah. I mean, because we're all the center of our own stories. So right. We're going to be we're more inter- we're more invested in this one. Um, and just to come back to back to the uh, uh, the statistical possibilities. I mean, just thinking back to how we both were like, whoa, 16, whoa, Tennessee. But when you really break it down, like the chances of us scoring the same day I mean, the same date within a month. That's what, a 1 in 30, 1 in 31 chance mm-hmm. for the most part. And Tennessee, well, you could say, well, we're both living and working in Atlanta. Yeah. So there's probably a reasonable uh, chance that we would come from a southern state. Right. And, of which there are... I mean, <laughs> I think... <laughs> but not that many. There's very many literature majors from Tennessee end up in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. That's not unusual. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, hey, there could be another cause, though. So th- that's just the apparent cause, the cause that's um, readily available. You just haven't looked at the math. Right. There could also be a hidden cause when something appears to be a coincidence. It's not actually a coincidence because there's an actual causal link that you don't know about. Um, the classic example of this would be cheating and gambling. Yes, this is where a person rolls a dice, right? Yeah, so so you roll a pair of dice, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a hundred times in a row, 
and let's say you uh, you roll a seven ninety six out of those hundred times. Yeah, like the more the, the the more every time you roll and you get the same number, it gets the, the it gets even more astronomical that it yeah. would have happened. How, how could that possibly yeah. have happened? Well, obviously, if there's a hidden cause, which is the dice are loaded so that they will turn up a seven pretty much every time. Yeah. So there you go. You don't simple. have to be a god to do it. You just have to be a cheater with with a pair of loaded die. Exactly. And another example comes to mind. This was uh, going back to Carl Jung. Carl Jung mm-hmm. was uh, associated with the physicist Wolfgang Pauli. And Pauli was famous for uh, coming up with the, the, the Pauli exclusion principle, which is important in quantum mechanics. I don't remember exactly what it does right now. but it, Something to do with Pauli Shore. Is yeah. I remember. Oh. <laughs> That's right. But yeah, he um, so, so he was a known physicist and it did really important work. Uh, but Pauli, I think, was also sort of interested in the, the you know strange synchronicity type ideas. And Pauli, in, in addition to the Pauli principle, which is an actual principle of science, was known for the Pauli effect, which is a more anecdotal effect. But the story goes like this. Everywhere Wolfgang Pauli went, machines broke. Ah, uh, this is the, the classic uh, watchstopper scenario. Yeah. yeah, so he would show up in a lab somewhere to test out some equipment. And well, what do you know? The equipment isn't working today. Can't figure it out. And then he'd leave the lab and suddenly it'd start working again. Uh, we don't know how many of these stories are actually true, but th- this is a popular anecdotal legend, and we'll just accept that it's true for the purpose of the conversation, that everywhere he went, it seemed like stuff wouldn't work. In fact, there was even one anecdote I read about uh, where some people were working in a lab and their equipment stopped working and they joked, uh, is, is you know Wolfgang here? Is, is he coming down the hall? Uh, and then later they found out that he just happened to have been changing trains in that city on that day at the time that their equipment malfunctioned. Oh, wow. He has some long-reaching effects with right. this curse. Okay. So whether or not that's true, oh, I can say there could true. <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. Let's go ahead and settle that yeah. one. Uh, but but if it were true, you could perhaps look for actual hidden causes. It might not be a synchronistic coincidence that you know that the universe, the the unus, uh, the unus mundi, is trying to tell. Wolfgang Pauli something about his relationship with machines or something. It could be perhaps that. Polly had a habit of scuffing around his office carpet before heading into the lab, and that led him to discharge a lot of static electricity, which could break some really delicate instruments. Or Polly is just really clumsy. Yeah. You know? And, of course, he's also not taking into account all the machines that are not breaking in Polly's life, right? Is, right. Is literally everything he touches, does it just fall apart and rust uh, you know, before his very eyes? Or is it just, oh, this thing broke? How could that happen? How could a machine, uh, this little device made by uh, a human, how could this possibly stop working? Right. Uh, you know, so you end up you end up honing in on those instances where it doesn't work. Right, and it's also, I think, <laughs> probably not communicating the reality about lab equipment, which is yeah. that it probably breaks all the time. And there's a lot of it. Any lab is going to have a lot of equipment, and all of it has a half life and uh, yeah. and, a, and a, a, a death point. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that's the idea of the hidden cause. And then, of course, those are just some hypothetical examples we're offering. The true hidden cause would be the one we haven't even thought of. You know, the, the cause that's an actual physical causal link that's causing things to malfunction in uh, Polly's presence, but we can't even guess what it is. Yeah. It might be there. 
Yeah, so I think we should move on to another one of the points that Diaconis and Mosteller make in their paper, which is the, quote, multiplicity of endpoints, or oh, the yeah. sort of like the cost of close point. Yeah, because as we have already illustrated, close counts in coincidence. Like when we were talking about birthdays, we were looking for the same day in the same month, but we settled for 16, you know? Mm-hmm. We were looking for the same Tennessee town, and oh my God, we accidentally went to the same high school and didn't realize it, but we'll settle for just the same state. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're constantly looking for these, uh, these little coincidences to line up, and we'll settle for something that's close. And if you settle for close, the uh, statistical possibilities just blow up, such as with the birthday situation. Right. Um, if you want to, uh, to, uh, to, if you want to hit a near birthday match with a group of people, so okay, make sure so that you're back on the day. train car. Yeah, and... back on the train car, and you, you're willing to, to settle for, all right, let's see who, who on this train car has a birthday within a day of each other. You know, we'll settle for a close match. Then you only seven people are needed for that 50-50 chance. Right. Seven. So, yeah, so so coming down from from a perfect match to a near match just opens it up tremendously. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when you think about uh, the accumulation effect that we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier, it makes it much easier if you are accumulating close matches. You keep building up close matches, and over time they start to look significant because they just turn into hits in your memory. Yeah. You know, you don't remember, well, that was kind of close. You remember there's a hit. And then another hit, and then another hit. And some of these might be actual hits, some of these might be close hits. But they all kind of blend together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this brings to mind uh, like cold readings and uh, you know and, and yeah. the, the, the whole psychic game, right? Where you throw out, oh, I'm I'm I think there's somebody named Joe in in your life, and you're like, well, I have an uncle Joseph. There you go. Close becomes a perfect match yeah. in, the, in the blink of an eye, and then that is how you retcon your memory. Okay. Then also, when studying coincidences, th- this is another category of uh, of Diaconis and Mosteller. There's the law of truly large numbers, and this is a point about context. So let's say somebody encounters an event that is truly incredibly unlikely for a person to experience. So it's not one of those things with a hidden cause. Mm -hmm. It's not one of those things where the odds are actually, you know, much more probable than you realize. It's truly unlikely. You still have to consider context. You have to consider this event against the vast number of uncounted dice rolls of human experience that it is nestled in. So here's an analogy. Uh, let's say you're talking to a professional poker player. Okay. And she tells you one time she was playing five-card poker and she was dealt a royal flush on the opening bet of a hand. Didn't okay. have to trade any cards. She just got a royal flush. Now, the odds of being dealt a royal flush are about one in 650,000. I think it's like 649,000 or something like that. About one in 650,000. But you wouldn't say to this poker player, oh, you must be lying mm-hmm. or like, you know, or you must have been cheating in this game because you understand that the anecdote is in context. If she's a professional poker player, uh, depending on how long she's playing, she might have been dealt hundreds of thousands of hands in her life. And on top of that, she's one player out of many, and maybe not everybody has had that experience. So when considered in context, really improbable events start looking like, oh, okay, well, yeah, this is the one chance in however many. Yeah, this is kind of the, it'll, it's bound to happen eventually clause, right? right? Like if enough people are trying a, a given thing, 
it's going to line up. The monkeys are going to compose the complete works of Shakespeare if yeah. given enough time. Yeah, so there are improbable events, but there are just a lot of chances to achieve them. Yeah. Uh, there are 7.3 billion people on Earth today, and according to the Population Reference Bureau, there is an estimated 108 billion people who have ever lived. So considering that, if there's an event that has a one in a million chance per year of occurring in somebody's life, let's say it's, I don't know what the actual chance of this is, but having a baseball bat thrown over a wall and it hits you on the head or something, okay. uh, it should still happen to 7,300 people every year, just given the population of the Earth. That That is the probability. Uh, if there's a 1 in 10 billion chance of something ever occurring in a human's life, it should still have happened to at least 10 people in human history. And it, it kind of comes back around to the, the idea of synchronicity, the, the Jungian idea. Uh, because even though we're, we're talking about... Uh, about real numbers and uh, and just our sort of our inability to really make statistical sense of the r- actual odds of things. Uh, those actual odds, the computation of those odds, they kind of exist within the wall. They kind of exist outside of our perception and our understanding of life uh, in the small sense, in the individual sense. So, in a way, uh, you know, synchronicity uh, lines up well with uh, with the with the uh, statistical likelihood of things happening. We just we're just not privy to it. Yeah, I think that connects back to the fact that there is a personal significance for us, even if there is not a statistical significance. Uh, again, it's not surprising that somebody won the lottery. It would be really surprising if you won the lottery. That's yeah. not actually objectively surprising. It's just surprising to you. Which, of course, brings us to psychology. Yeah, and we save this for last because I think this might be the most significant of all of these factors. And this is the fact that sometimes it's not even the numbers. Sometimes it's not even the data. It's just that we are wired to bow at the altar of coincidence. It's how our brains work. Indeed. I mean, that's just how we survive. That's how we make sense of the stimuli in our environment. That's how we form our memories, and that's how we uh, plan for the future. Yeah. Uh, so let's look at some psychological phenomenon that, that are sort of related to our tendency to take note of coincidences and maybe attribute to them more magical significance than they might actually have. Uh, how about... You ever heard of the Batter-Mainhoff phenomenon? Yeah, this is the the frequency illusion. This yeah. is, uh, I guess, the famous example of this would be you just learn a new word. You know, you uh, either you encounter it in a book and you're like, "Whoa, I don't know that one." You look it up and you're rather taken with it, and then it seems to pop up everywhere. Mm-hmm. You just learned about it, and it's, and it's all around you. So it's like discovering a flower exists for the first time that you'd never seen before, and then suddenly it seems to be growing in every pot across town. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so the weird name actually comes from a West German terrorist organization. <laughs> doesn't have anything to do with them, really. Uh, I, I read that the origin of this was that uh, the phenomenon supposedly got its name because a, a message board user somewhere online told a story of encountering information about the, the Batter-Meinhof gang and then just suddenly seeing that again within like 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure this has happened to you. It's happened to me all the time. Uh this actually happened to me while I was researching these podcasts we're recording today. So in the other podcast we're recording today, uh, there's a mention of uh, Principe Island mm-hmm. off of the west coast of Africa. And I had when I when I got to that in the research, I realized I had just been reading about that island for the first time, like less than 24 hours before hmm. uh, for completely unrelated reasons. Not related to astronomy or anything? No. Huh. 
But see, yeah, you see those kind of weird little coincidences uh, pop up yeah. all the time. And uh, I, I've often found that to be the case. Two seemingly unrelated uh, episodes, but there'll be some little thread that connects them. Um, you know, a, another example of the frequency illusion that I often see is I'll, I'll come across like a new concept uh, or a concept I wasn't that familiar with, and I'll do a deep dive in, in it for a podca- podcast such as uh, Supernormal Stimuli. Uh, was a big one, uh, and uh, after I researched it, I was just I was just seeing it everywhere. Like it, it kind of a topic like that of uh, you know of, of sufficient depth. It kind of changes the way you look at the world, and then you see reflections of it just all around you. Yeah, and uh, and, and so it, it can be something as simple as a as a word. It can be something that's uh, you know a particular place, a particular uh, you know a particular band, a particular uh, work of literature, or it can be. Uh, you know, a, a philosophical mindset. Suddenly, because you're aware of it, you're hyper aware of it, you're excited about it, you're going to see it in the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there, there could be lots of reasons. One could be that hidden causal connection. Mm-hmm. You know, there are actually reasons that you're investigating similar stories around the same time or reading similar material that might use a new and unfamiliar word around the same time because you have interests and drives that are sort of unified by time. Uh, also, the authors of the paper we were talking about earlier have they have their own sort of mathematical analysis of this, don't they? And they mm-hmm. sort of explain how it, it's not that unusual that you should, you know, at a certain point after acquiring a word for the first time, see it again. Yeah, that's just sort of expected to happen. Yeah, they're just they're, there's a finite number of words, so yeah. you're going to see them again. Um, and of course, this plays into apophenia. Uh, this is a this is a term comes to us uh, from German scientist Klaus Conrad, who uh, coined apophenia from the Greek apo, away, and uh, uh, and uh, phenia to show in 1958 when he was studying acute schizophrenia, uh, during which connections and meanings seem to web together uh, around unrelated details. So this is the basic idea here: is we're always looking for patterns and signals from our environment. I mean, that's how we think, that's how we live, that's how we survive, uh, particularly when it comes to assessing threats. Okay. Um, and so we have, uh, we often have this tendency to perceive patterns and connections, uh, in random or meaningless data. Um, for instance, uh, uh one, one example that comes to mind here is you have some sort of silly police drama on, right? They're looking at a map of the city and they have little pins showing where the crimes are at. Mm-hmm. And then what do they see? They see like a pentagram, right? They see some, <laughs> some sort of order. And, and of course in the show it always makes sense, right? Like, uh, the, the satanic killer actually is trying yeah. to kill people so that his crimes look like a pentagram on a map. But, but you can see that pentagram without any planning at all, or, yeah. or some other symbol. Yeah, if you want to see that pentagram in the planning, you can see that pentagram in the planning of just about anything. Um, but what this basically breaks down to is a, a false positive in statistics, yeah. uh, a type one error in cognition. And this is something that plays into religion, gambling, conspiracy theory, and just our, our and also our need to see faces everywhere. Right. It's the reason we see uh, figures in the constellations in the sky. Right. I mean, I'd say very few people these days actually think that, that the stars were arranged to look like a figure from Greek myth. Yeah, because you'd think whoever was doing it would do a better job. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's it's not very good. It's, it's kind of a, a crappy portrait. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people saw it. Yeah, yeah, they, they saw the pattern, and we just can't help but see patterns. We're pattern recognition engines, uh, as we've mentioned before here. Uh, and there's the thing is there's an evolutionary advantage for us pattern recognition apes in making that type 1 error. Because 
essentially you have you have the, you have a type one error and you have a type two, right? Uh, false positive, false negative, and uh, the classic example uh, is that of uh, you know rustling in the bushes on the on the prehistoric savanna, right? Right. There's a possibility that a big cat is about to spring out of those rustling bushes and kill us, or it could be the statistical noise of wind. Exactly, a false positive. Just gets you hot and bothered over nothing. It may be a good laugh. Ha, I thought it was a tiger and it was just wind. Yeah. But a false negative, that gets you killed. Yeah. So, so obviously there's obviously there's a, a selection pressure to favor false positives. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, so that just plays into how we think and how we behave as humans and our overwhelming tendency to see the pattern when there isn't one. Yeah. To see the connective tissue between events, in this case, when there isn't any. Right. So, yeah. And so in that way, a coincidence can represent a pattern to us. We start thinking, what does it mean? Yeah. I mean, and there's likely a connection uh, between apophenia and creativity. This is a theory that was put, put forth by Swiss neurologist Peter Brueger uh, in a 2001 book, uh, Hauntings and Poltergeist, Multidisciplinary Perspectives. And uh, he was studying apophenia in patients suffering from psychotic episodes uh, that were beginning to find spontaneous meaning in random aspects of their life. And his research revealed that high levels of dopamine uh, disposed his patients to find meetings, patterns, significance where there, wa- where there was none. So... Creativity, apophenia, uh, you know, it's what is creativity but ultimately, you know, finding new patterns, new connections, new ways to arrange existing ideas and motifs uh, into something new, right? Of course, yeah. I mean, uh, we often see that as sort of the core of the creative principle. It's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, understanding like, oh, this is connected to this other thing. And very often the connections you see between uh, events or objects or ideas in, say, a, a literature class or something like that, are they are still psychic phenomenon. It's something that we are putting together out of our need to find meaning. That's right. And a lot of times that meaning that we need to find you know, we, we already have our, our minds made up about what that meaning is. And mm-hmm. This brings us to confirmation bias, which, of course, is always a big one. This, of course, is the idea that we have a tendency to search for or interpret information in a way that confirms your preconceptions uh, about life, about uh, about basically anything, which leads to statistical errors that cloud your decision and problem decision making and problem solving ability. Yeah, so this would come into play if, say, you are already looking for a pattern of coincidences. Mm-hmm. Say you've had two uh, like two sort of synchronous strange events happen in one day. You're looking for a third. Yeah. And that's going to bias the way that you sample data. It's probably going to make you look for things that are sort of a close hit, something you might have ignored otherwise to confirm your pattern hypothesis uh, that uh, there's going to be something in line with this second thing. You know, it's the uh, the same like people die in threes idea. I was just thinking of that, yeah. Yeah. Like you, if you're lucky, you'll get like two A-list celebrities dying at the same time but then often like that third one has to be like a radio star from yeah. the old days or you know something that doesn't really match up but you'll take it it's totally it completes the prophecy exactly right it's confirmation bias you're, you're bringing it in because you've got to make it fit the pattern mm-hmm. yeah it, it's kind of like when you listen to an episode of this american life and like the they have the theme for the show and like the intro hits the theme the second segment really hits the theme Third segment, second, third segment, you know, they mostly hit the theme. And that last one, you're kind of like, I don't know. Close enough. Close (laughs) enough to close out the show, but you really kind of strayed from the overall theme. (laughs) Um, That's pretty much how we approach life in general. 
whether you're talking about belief in UFOs, ancient Egyptians and alien tech, Bigfoot, or or you know office conspiracies, whatever it happens to be, <laughs> if you're looking for something to be true, uh, you can find it. That so if, it, it plays into scientific uh, analysis. You have a you know a theory you want and you want to see it proven out, and you subconsciously skew your the results of the the experimentation in your favor. Uh, you want to love that new movie that uh, just hit the theaters, so you wind up looking for reasons to love it and focusing more on that than and, and being perhaps a little less critical than you normally would. And then, of course, there's the racial aspect too, right? You, uh, you, if you happen to distrust members of another racial group, you wind up focusing on the evidence that supports your existing distrust rather than evidence that challenges it. Oh yeah, people are definitely likely to oversample stuff that confirms their bigotry or biases. So if, yeah, if if you have a preconceived stereotype, you're looking to make things fit. Evidence that doesn't fit it, you just kind of like, yeah, that's noise. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, you're kind of maintaining the castle of, uh, you know, fortress sanity and fortress worldview. And, uh, and, and so you want to, to focus as much on the stuff that keeps the walls up yeah. as possible. Yeah, of course, this all works perfectly because post-diction is largely a result of the brain's task of continually integrating sensory stimuli and reconciling, uh, uh, conflicting information into a unified vision of reality, a unified story, again, in which we're the central character. Yeah. I mean, that's just simply how our memory. Yeah, I mean, you, you always see the uh, the pattern of clues left by the mystery writer once you've had the ending revealed. You, you might not notice it while you're going through the novel to, to the first time. All right, so there you have it, The Science of Coincidence. Hope you enjoyed the rerun uh, or the, the first run if you had not heard the previous one. Yeah, so I hope you will take something away from this that you can apply to your everyday life when you think about all those strange coincidences you encounter day in and day out, and do they really mean something? Indeed. Now, in the meantime, if you want to explore more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find videos. You'll find blog posts. You'll find links out to our social media accounts, such as Facebook and Twitter. We're Blow the Mind on both of those. You'll also find us on Instagram and Tumblr. And if you want to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any others, you can always email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 